Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'd uh, like to begin today's podcast by thanking the kind souls who either bought a copy of my pay-what-you-can novel, The Genesis Generation, or uh, who made a donation directly to the salon. And these fine people are Brian E., Marvin B., Robert C., Abdul U., Chris T., Don L., and James C. Thank you all uh, ever so much. I really appreciate your support. And now, uh, for a little change of pace in the uh, series here, we've been doing a whole series of Terrence McKenna talks in the last few podcasts, and so today I'm dipping back into the audio archive of Dr. Timothy Leary, which uh, you and I have access to through the good graces of Dennis Berry, who is the wonderful woman that at great personal sacrifice managed to keep the massive Leary archive intact, and to Bruce Damer, who introduced me to Dennis and who has also had a lot of interaction with this archive. And in the months ahead, I'll have some more to say about this archive itself, but uh, right now I want to get on with today's talk. What I'm about to play for you is a recording that was in the Horowitz file of the Leary audio recordings, and uh, according to its label, this is a recording of a television program from Toronto, Canada, that was called Enterprise, or uh, something like that. It took place uh, sometime in 1983. The guest host that night was none other than Dr. Timothy Leary, and his topic for discussion that evening was artificial intelligence. Now, I'll have a little more to say about my own thoughts on that subject after we uh, hear what Timothy's guests have to say, but I do want to be sure that as you listen to this panel discussion, you uh, keep in mind the fact that it took place in 1983, which was 10 years before Werner Vinge wrote the paper in which he made famous the phrase, technological singularity. So while you won't be hearing any speculations about that idea in this recording, it's also something that I want to touch on from my own point of view uh, after we hear what the experts were saying about the concept of an AI back in 1983. Now the only edits I made to the original recording is that I did remove the commercials that they cut away to on several occasions. And uh, the recording begins just as you hear it with no formal introduction of the first guest. And so I don't forget it, uh, just in case you happen to be somebody who seriously questions the value of a college education, there's, uh, <laughs> there's some really good ammunition here for your position, uh, and I should say my position as well. You see, my own reason for uh, doubting the value of a college education is that my undergraduate degree was in electrical engineering from the University of Notre Dame, and that was back in 1964. And the professor who taught uh, what was then the brand new field of solid-state transistors began the semester by saying that we had to learn about solid-state devices in order to graduate, but we could safely forget all about them after graduation because there was just no way they would ever replace vacuum tubes, which of course were his specialty. And so I've never thought very highly of my formal engineering education, at least when compared with what I learned on the job. But I chalk that up to the fact that, uh, hey, Notre Dame was never an engineering powerhouse, uh, at least when compared to the West Coast schools and, uh, of course, when compared to the biggest of them all, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. 
So <laughs> it really cracked me up uh, the first time I heard this recording when a very famous professor from MIT predicts that home computers would suffer the same fate as the home movie camera and wind up in a drawer, unused. Granted, this was uh, in 1983, about 10 years before the web, but even I knew better than that back then and uh, had already been manufacturing and selling personal computers for uh, over three years by then. So now I'm thinking that maybe it doesn't matter where you go to school because at the pace the world is moving in these days, the uh, university model for educating people may be uh, seriously outdated. Not only that, uh, but here in the States, a college education is also the beginning of a lifetime of indebtedness. Uh, but I digress. So I'll just shut up and turn on this recording of Dr. Timothy Leary hosting a 1983 television program in Toronto, Canada. AI might be a rehearsal for ET. There it is in 10 words or less. <laughs> well, that's uh, uh, from AI to ET. Um, give us a little more specifics. You're right. kind of here to set the program up for our viewers and lay the, the broad framework, so uh, the, uh, keep it going. Before I get into all the, uh, those ideas of it being humanizing and whether or not it's intelligence, which are pretty well in opinions that will be expressed on the show, let me give you an idea of, of just what the computer can do. And basically, computers can only do two things. They can calculate, which is add and subtract or do mathematics, and they can sort. You can give them a whole store of information, give them your file cabinet, and they will very quickly go through that information and perhaps find specific facts or give you associations or make relationships that perhaps you didn't see before. In terms of the calculating ability of the computer, that's the oldest function, the oldest kind of computer that's been around. The Chinese have had it for about 2,000 years or more with the uh, beads on a string, uh, the abacus, where they can calculate. And uh, I was in China just earlier this year, and they still use them. When you go into a store, there's no cash register. It's an abacus, and they're sitting there flicking away these things, and it's still a very good thing. Here in, uh, in North America, we have the pocket calculator, but it's doing the same thing. All it is is adding. I don't think of this as a smart machine. However... With the adding and subtracting ability, the, the mathematical ability of a machine, like a, like a computer, we can make mathematical models of various things, and then we can tell that to the computer and have the computer do things for us. We can program it. And when you give a, a computer a very rigid set of instructions, first you do this, then do that, then do this, you will get from here to there, whether it be a robot, if you want to go to another planet, for example, then that's called an algorithm, and that's just a set of rules. And uh, some people think that this is, is smart because you might see a robot going through a series of events and there's no human around and it's, it's just sort of sniffing around or maybe it's assembling a car or it's, it's doing some very specific task and it, it seems to be smart when really the, the intelligence there is in the foresight of the programmer, the person who figured out what are all the things that we need to do to get that task done. Now to give you an example of that, I have a film that... Uh, is a computer-generated film. It's a mathematical model that shows a spacecraft going by the planet Saturn. This actually happened uh, before the spacecraft went there. The spacecraft was called Pioneer 11. They wanted to know what's the spacecraft going to see. Well, we know how far away Saturn is. We know how big it is. We know uh, uh, what the gravitational perturbations of the spacecraft are. So we put all of those calculations into the computer, and then the computer constructed the model for us. So every frame of this film that you're seeing as the spacecraft goes by the, 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 the planet was simply a mathematical calculation. The spacecraft itself was a robot. It's so far away from the Earth that we can't really talk to it. Uh, it takes about an hour and a half to get a message to Saturn and back. 
So the spacecraft had to be able to do things like look down on the underside of the rings and examine the lightning that was happening down on Saturn and well, then uh, point its look camera. Look for a parking place. Yeah, and find out if there's anything there. It was an alien environment uh -huh. that's, that's too far away and too dangerous for humans to go. And uh, it knew where to point its cameras and various things. Well, there's an example of a robot doing something following a very linear sequence of events. Well, I don't really think of that as artificial intelligence, and, and a lot of people do. There is, however, another aspect of computing, which is this sorting aspect. And this gets closer to the, the human process of thinking. Well, that's like a file clerk. Sort of. Or yeah. if you have a problem, if I ask you uh, a problem, then you will, you will answer my question according to your experience, according to what you know. I sort through my own memory bank and come out with... That's right. And you, and you might make associations. Uh, if you were uh, a medical doctor uh, who uh, perhaps studied uh, lung disease, then I would say, well, look, I've, I've got this funny cough, and uh, uh, what's, what's that mean? And then you'd ask me a series of questions. Well, now you're defining what they call expert systems. Uh, expert or smart programs. Yeah. And, and this kind of thing is where the, the computer is given a memory that is a series of events, the gathering of an expertise of, of a number of different fields, or maybe one field. And then when the, when the computer is asked a question, it searches that memory and looks for the, the right association. Now, you've given us two examples of uh, uh, computers, the calculator and the expert memory. But isn't there a third and much more important dimension of... Uh, machines uh, or entities that can think, reason, create, uh, have senses of humor, perhaps uh, flirt, uh, well, uh, God yes, knows what? Yes, there is. And, uh, well, what would within you call that, them? <laughs> I'd still call them tools. I'd still just call them machines that have been carefully programmed. Uh, there is the, the ability to make decisions, yes. And uh, there's, there's the, uh, again, it's sort of part of this sorting aspect, that if, uh, if, I, have a, if I have a problem and it's a very complex problem, then the computer can sort of say, well, this problem sort of relates to something I know over here, and it sort of relates to something over here, so I'm going to put those two together and say, that's your answer. Now, fortunately, we don't give the computer the final say. The computer, in terms of something like medical diagnostics, uh, where we'll say, find, associate these symptoms and give me the disease, the doctor will then say, well, I agree with that or I don't agree with it, and then he's using it as... We're a not ready for a war game scenario where the, uh, this, the human is taken out of the loop. No, uh, the human is still a very, very integral part of it. Uh, there are two other aspects of artificial intelligence that uh, are within this, uh, that are trying to make the computer easier to relate to. You see, the human is, the, is one of the slower links in this whole chain. Computers can think very fast. Well, I, I hate to use that word, yeah, we, think. We, <laughs> I've heard a lot about uh, friendly computers and unfriendly, but we've also uh, have the concept of friendly humans and unfriendly, yes, too. Yes, yes, we do. And uh, in order to make computers more user-friendly, what we're trying to do is bridge that gap so that you can talk to it more easily. And there's a whole area whereby the computer has its own language, because if it has an incredibly large memory, or if there are several computers working together to try to solve a problem, they need time to, to get through those, those, those programs, and so there are shortcut languages that are being developed within the computers themselves. And these languages are hard for the humans to, to translate and to work at. So what they're trying to do is to develop a language whereby the computer can understand English. So you can say, hi, I got a problem, what is it? And say it in English and the computer can understand or it. Or Spanish or Japanese. Or, or different languages. Or, uh, and even respond or street to, hip. Huh? Right, yeah, or yeah. even respond to voice control. Mm -hmm. The other is vision. We'd like to give, give computers vision so that they can see where they're going and, and be able to recognize patterns and pick things up. Canada's involved in that, by the way, with the, uh, uh, with the space arm, the shuttle. Mm -hmm. 
uh, mm. space arm that's going to try to give it eyes. Now that we have an arm, we're going give it, to give it eyes. If all of these things come together, uh, the, the fifth generation, which is sort of the embodiment of all of these things of decision-making, supposedly reason, the ability to select uh, various problems and see and move around, we get it all into a robotic, then we're dealing with a machine that can apparently think and move around and relate to us. And whether well, or not uh, it is actually thinking uh, is something we have to do. At this moment, with. I'm a thinking machine, doing my best to relate. Uh, my, you've got my brain spinning in the best uh, sense. Joining Dr. Leary is Wendy Leonard. Wendy, I'm glad you're here. In uh, reading your work, which I find, by the way, inspiring and uh, intelligence increasing, the word natural uh, language comes up a lot. Could you... Tell us a little bit about that. Well, we use the term natural language to differentiate it from computer programming languages. When we talk about natural language processing by computer, we're talking about getting computers to understand English, French, whatever language it is that you normally speak. So we're trying to increase the ease with which people can use computers, and we're incidentally trying to learn a lot about how people use natural language in order to achieve this. Now, it might not be at all obvious what's difficult about getting computers to do natural language. Uh, we traditionally think of computers being able to uh, compute. They and perform do arithmetic great chess operations. problems and uh, solve great uh, mathematical equations and That's right. tough we, stuff like that. We associate certain tasks with computers and natural language does not seem to be one of them. As we try to get computers to understand natural language, we understand a lot more about what's difficult in that task. For example, when I speak to you and you hear my sentences, you make a lot of assumptions that could in fact be wrong. We, we call these inferences. For example, if I'm talking to you about a mutual friend, John, and I mentioned to you, did you hear John almost got hit by a car last night? Um, oh. It's, it's, um, it's not at all clear uh, exactly what, what must have happened, but you make some inferences that John must have been outside, John must have been engaged in some sort of an activity, and this, this has implications, this has consequences. We can have expectations about this interfering with, with something that John was doing. And we're naturally concerned. We think to ask, was he hurt? Mm -hmm. What happened? Uh, now, these are, these are all functions that people handle quite naturally. And it's something that is not at all easy for a computer. Uh, inferences are assumptions that, that could be wrong. And it's been estimated that 80% of the communication content that flies between people is of this nature. If a computer is missing this information, the computer is not dealing with natural language in any sort of a, a reasonable sense. Well, of course, uh, uh, we can't be too hard on the computer or the knowledge information processing unit because people, too, uh, make faulty inferences. And uh, what is this teaching mm -hmm. us about the human mind? I'm a psychologist, and naturally I'm, I'm eager to know what um, we can find out about how, well, how the human mind works. We're learning a lot about the nature of human intelligence. For example, uh, when I ask you what impresses you as intelligent behavior, uh, we tend to associate easy tasks with things that everyone can do, and everyone can do fairly effortlessly. So, for example, uh, most people can drive a car. That's not very impressive. We don't take that to be a hard task. On the other hand, not very many people can prove theorems or play master-level chess. We tend to find that impressive. Also, the things that children can do strike us as being easy, whereas the things that we only learn to do after the age of 20 or 30 strike us as being more impressive. Now, with computers, 
we discover an irony involved in that kind of developmental view of, of impressive behavior. With computers, it's actually easier to program a system to play master-level chess, to prove theorems, to hypothesize results in mathematics, than it is to, for example, get a computer to um, recognize images in a scene or understand simple sentences and respond to them in reasonable ways. So we're seeing, we're well, seeing that, that, an that inverse. Because computers were designed by uh, high-level mathematicians and chess players, maybe? If not at all, not no. at all. It has to do with the essential nature of the processes that we're working with. Some processes only draw on a very limited, constrained amount of knowledge, and we can characterize that knowledge in a fairly comprehensive, intelligible way. We can talk to someone who plays master-level chess. We can ask them, how is it you do this? What's the difference between a beginning game and a middle game and an end game? We can get some information out about that process of playing chess, but when we get down to the low-level, apparently easy tasks, like, like visual scene analysis and natural language or understanding, driving a car. or driving a car, it's very hard to introspect on exactly Why what is that? processes are well, It's hard are to get the average work. person to explain how they drive from one oh, it's, corner of a town to the other? It's difficult in terms of the very, very low-level processes which we have all become unconscious of. Mm -hmm. When you first started learning to drive a car, you had to think very hard about how much pressure to put on the brake, how to balance the clutch, how soon to start turning the mm -hmm. wheel to make yeah. it respond to a curve in the road. You really worked very hard in mastering that skill. But once you had it, it was down. It sort of got... Reflex. Uh, it became a reflex. Habit. Think of it as a reflex and we're no longer impressed by it. But the fact of the matter is that there's a lot of cognitive work which is still ongoing. The fact that we aren't conscious of it, preoccupied by it, or attending to it doesn't make it any less impressive than it was when we first started acquiring the skill. Things like scene analysis and language are skills that we can't remember having ever acquired, and it's very difficult for us to appreciate how much effort goes into those tasks. Wendy, um, do you think that this work on superintelligence or artificial intelligence is going to help us understand more about human nature and human psychology? And well, we're certainly learning a lot about the human mind, which psychology and philosophy and linguistics was not in a position to teach us. Isn't that interesting? Uh, one of the side effects here seems to be that, uh, as a psychologist, I'm embarrassed to realize that we psychologists don't know that much about how the mind works. And I know well, the philosophers are a little worried that... Uh, you're raising questions about human nature and uh, the, the, the very, very value systems. There's some very healthy interactions going on between the disciplines because people realize that AI has something to tell the other disciplines that are interested in the study of mind. And I think we're coming to appreciate the difference between information and knowledge. Yeah. I think we, we, should, we should make a very strong distinction between information in the sense of the kind of passive information that's present in a library. Mm -hmm. We don't think of libraries as having intelligence per se. And books don't think, really. Books don't yeah. think. The library is not intelligent. Mm -hmm. It's a person who goes into the library and uses that knowledge who becomes mm -hmm. intelligent. And knowledge is, is therefore information plus structure, the ability to find relevant information when you need it, apply it to appropriate tasks as needed, and sort through, again, sorting came up earlier, in some sense, intelligently access and sort through all of the hundreds of millions of thousands of billions of things that people know in order about, to uh, use the things we need when we need them. How about to innovate or to create, uh, to come up with uh, originality? Well, I, I think we're learning a lot about what we normally call intuitive 
thought processes, creative processes, which are, are normally thought to be very mystical and untouchable, and how could science ever say anything about these processes? I think what makes, makes them mystical and untouchable is the and same thing that makes driving a car difficult yeah, to understand. Yeah, yeah. It's just a process that we can't introspect on. It's no different than any other, and we can study it just like any other. Uh, poetry, too? We have... Uh... We'll have, we'll have good machine poetry and bad machine poetry? Well, of course, that's always been a controversial area to pass judgment on, and I don't think yeah. computers are going to make that one any easier. <laughs> but more interesting. It's certainly a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, are these machines going to surpass us in um, intelligence uh, or stimulate us? Or? Well, if, I think when people ask that question, they're, they're really asking, will machines be capable of intelligent behavior, which is in some sense very different from human intelligent behavior. And to some extent, in an uninteresting way, that's already happened. The expert systems are much more reliable than people in the sense that, that they aren't subject to the kinds of distractions and lapses that people have. So on, on a very well, uninteresting level there. Now. We'll continue in a moment uh, after this break. Although artificial intelligence is the single most exciting development in computer technology, there are scientists who urge caution. Our next guest is one of the most widely respected computer scientists who believes that the crucial difference between man and machine is one of risk, courage, trust, and endurance. Joining Dr. Leary is Joseph Weizenbaum. Professor Weizenbaum, it's a great honor and pleasure to have you here. Uh, I've always felt for many years that you're a hero and legend in your own time. I mean, the last 20 years, uh, many of us have felt concerned uh, about the monolithic computer age, the IBMs, the KGBs, the credit card checks, and so forth. And your voice has been heard throughout the, the land, kind of defending the uh, individual and the human aspects. Uh, how did you fall into this, uh, if I may say so, heroic role? Well, I certainly didn't choose it. Uh, there, there are lots of ways to answer that question uh, because uh, I think human experience in general is sort of like a, a Washerman story that is uh, uh, that, uh, that there may be uh, four or five or seven different accounts of something all of them right and yet each flatly contradicting the other uh, I think in, in my own case uh, uh, I happen to be at MIT and I happen to be there at, at, a, at a very uh, um, uh, what interesting time in the sense that of the Chinese who, who think of it as a curse to say may you live in interesting times <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of uh, you know, the the so the, uh, but the Vietnam no, the Vietnam uh, uh, war and, and what went on in universities at the time and so on oh the time of uh, upheaval and of upheaval, questioning yeah. and challenging exactly exactly and especially at MIT which which uh, is, is rather closely connected to Washington was at the time as well and so on and at that time, uh, I, I was working on uh, what was then called conversational programming, that is, uh, uh, dealing with a computer, not in the way of, uh, of first writing a program, then giving it to the computer, then waiting for the computer to execute that program, and then seeing what one wants to do with the results and so on. But the way it's done now, pretty much, for example, on home computers, that is that you sit there, you write a few lines and get the computer reacts and so on and so forth. And, and in that time, uh, I, I wrote a program uh, that made it possible to convert with, converse with a computer uh, in, in natural language. The famous extent. Eliza. Yeah, yeah, the infamous Eliza, <laughs> of, of, of whom I can't get rid. Uh, uh, anyway, and, and it was uh, it, uh, a couple of things happened there. One is I noticed uh, very quickly 
uh, how deeply uh, people who played with it uh, became attached to the thing, so to speak, uh, in effect the holding power of the computer. Um, and, and that on the basis of what I knew to be a very, rather very simple program. And, and even, even, even then, uh, I think the, uh, many of the people who, who experienced this holding power uh, were, were in fact computer people at MIT who knew very well what was going on. So well, couldn't it be like a book? The first time I'm sure the book came along, people had that holding power, and people were attributing magic, and they couldn't yeah. tear the kid away from the book. Uh, is there some analogy there? I don't know whether that happened or not, but there might there might very well be. Uh, nevertheless, I found that interesting and to a, to a certain extent uh, uh, disturbing. Uh, again, the the, uh, the the sort of the, the power of the grip that I that I could observe. I think uh, we should real... perhaps explain for a moment, Professor, what Eliza is. Uh... Yeah. Well, uh, Eliza uh, was, uh, continues to exist, unfortunately, uh, not, not through my doing. Uh, anyway, e Eliza was a program which uh, caused the computer, so to speak, to pretend to be a psychiatrist in an initial psychiatric interview. And uh, the, the mode of use was that uh, someone uh, playing, playing the role of a patient... Uh, you, you type in your, uh, uh, type, your problems? That's right. You type in, for example, I can't sleep at night, for example. The sort of thing you might say to a psychiatrist initially. And, uh, and uh, partially out of uh, the, uh, the stuff that people typed in and partially out of its own storage, the computer would construct a response, which is generally a question, like, for example, uh, uh, why can't you sleep, and, or something of that sort. It's kind of uh, mirror, mirroring back and throwing yeah, back, yeah, getting the person theory. to talk more. Huh? That's right. Yeah. That's right. All, all the thing really did is, is to encourage the, the person to, to keep talking. Pour out the, yeah. the list of troubles. Yeah. And the, the, the other thing that, that disturbed me so about it was that uh, there were psychiatrists uh, in the United States, uh, even fairly well-known psychoanalysts, who saw this as the beginning of, uh, of uh, computerized uh, uh, psychiatry, I, and I found that, that thought to be just terribly abhorrent, computerized psychiatry. And not only does the program continue to live in one way or another, there's people are selling it, for example, and so on, uh, but the idea that, uh, that a computer uh, can, in fact, engage in therapeutic uh, conversations and, and a psychotherapeutic conversations, that idea won't die. And uh, resurfaces over and over and over again, and I find that very disturbing. Well, again, though, isn't it like a self-help book? People know that the book is simply a a bunch of words on paper, but yeah. uh, some way of get, uh, stimulating thought or yeah. stimulating questioning and yeah. getting well, the person to reflect on their own uh, yeah. situation? Well, uh, th that's one interpretation, but, but let's look at it another way. Uh, uh, let's look at, uh, say, a, a Christmas card or a Get Well card and, or something of that sort. <laughs> now, uh, uh, people, who believe, people who believe that the sentiments expressed on that card uh, you know, represent love coming from the card or something of that sort, you know, or, or, or for that matter, love coming from, from the sender of the card. The sender of the card chose the card and sent it, and that's all the sender did. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and one doesn't, you know, one doesn't believe that, that the card understands or in, in anything of the sort. Uh, the uh, the uh, belief that, that so many people had that the machine actually understood them. You know, yes, the machine understood me, no matter... What I'd say, they'd say, yes, I know it's a very simple program and, and so on and so forth, but nevertheless, I'm, I'm quite sure the machine understood The difference it. between the card and the machine program, though, is that if you get a get well card, it says get well. Yeah. But it, if you say, gee, thanks a lot, it doesn't say you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> you, you've yeah. been well, uh, you, very well known and continue to, to be a spokesman of caution about mm -hmm. artificial intelligence. Um, 
Yet something's happened uh, recently that has encouraged me and uh, kind of uh, quieted some of my fears, and that's the this explosion of personal computing, the fact that uh, everyone can have in their own home uh, the hardware and the software mm -hmm. and some the, the rudimentary knowledge so that we don't have to be victimized or feel uh, spindled and mutilated by IBM and the big corporations that uh, the movies war games and the idea of young kids learning how to uh, fight back even even the rebellion and the insistence on individuality and the fact that the establishment is now upset about kids and personal computers isn't this a source of uh, comfort for you not at all uh, I, I'm stunned by, by what you say. For example, let's just pick up on what you, the, almost the very last thing you said, you talked about uh, uh, the insistence on individuality or, the, or that individuality gets quite But It's a common a common statement people make that that uh, uh, the computer makes it possible to, to treat the people individually and to, in general to individualize, I don't quite like that word, uh, products. There's no reason in the world why everyone should have the same suit on. When computers make suits, they can make each suit different from every other suit, and so on and so forth. In fact, if we if we if we look at uh, what, what's actually happening and what's ha what's happened already, we see that the computer has has had and is having an enormously homogenizing effect, as we all tend to do things in the same way because. But of don't the you think the personal computer with personal programs is going to uh, an individual? Uh, yeah, the software. Mistake, yeah, the mistake. The mistake there is, is, is I think, in the in the idea of personal programs. I think very, very few people are going to write their own programs for for personal computers. Now, people we know, uh, the three of us, uh, they're they're likely to write programs for their personal computer. But but uh, they're a very special kind. They're people who teach computer science in universities and so on. I think that what's going to happen to the home computer, apart from the use of the home computer for for games, and word processing, quite apart from those two. The computer, the home computer, will suffer the fate uh, very largely of home movie cameras. Uh, there are today millions of home movie cameras in, in closets and, and drawers and so on, and they're in perfect working order, but haven't been used for years. And the well, reason uh, in for a that, or two are going to have. Uh, uh, let me just finish. The reason for that is that people thought that if they, uh, if if they buy a very good movie camera, they could make very good movies. Okay, and they forgot that in order to make a good movie, you have to have a good idea. Similarly with, with, with computers, okay, you buy a big expensive computer or a complex or a very powerful computer and you have the idea, now that you have all that power at your fingertips, you're going to do something marvelous. Again, you need an idea. Very few people have ideas on how to use a computer effectively. Well, you've certainly uh, contributed uh, to, uh, to ideas today and uh, we're going to have others, I know, that are going to share and, uh, and interact with your ideas. Uh, hold on for a minute, we'll be right back. Our next guest believes that machines will indeed be soon calling people. He's an artificial intelligence researcher from the Carnegie Mellon University who is convinced that the new developments in this field will be of the utmost benefit to mankind. Joining Dr. Neary is Professor Jaime Carbonell. Thanks for being with us today. Um, we've had a lot of free-flowing discussion here from space to down-to-earth problems. Uh, maybe you could focus for one moment on, on, on what does an artificial intelligence science, scientist expert do? How do you spend your days and time and what are you working on? Well, I work primarily on two aspects of artificial intelligence. Uh, one called cognitive modeling, which is trying to understand and, and replicate some aspects of human reasoning in the computer in order to better understand the human reasoning and in order to endow the computer with the capability to interact with a person not only in developing the language, the natural language, 
so that it can understand written or spoken English or, or any other language, but also so that it can make the same inferences that uh, um, Wendy referred to earlier in this uh, discussion. Um, to give you an example... You, you, you're going to get a, a super intelligent uh, machine that can be like a New York cab driver then, huh? Well, super intelligence is not the objective. The objective is to try to replicate human intelligence. Mm -hmm. In fact, it is more difficult uh, to replicate common sense reasoning than it is to um, show some aspects of creativity. Um, to give you one analogy, um, let's suppose that we have a master uh, and uh, child prodigy. And the uh, master who has just taught the child prodigy some aspects of physics uh, gives the child a barometer, measures pressure, air pressure, and uh, a tall building, and says, well, use this barometer to tell me how high the tall building is. And the child prodigy thinks a little bit, walks up to the top of the tall building, or takes the elevator, looks at his watch, drops the barometer down, counts how long it takes to smash the floor, and then computes the, uh, by the venerable formula, one-half gt squared, how long from the time it took how tall the building must be. The master is very upset. That's not the proper use I'm of I'm upset too. I, I, I've never thought of that. And then he says to the child, uh, to the prodigy, here's another barometer. Do not break this one. Uh -huh. See if you can make this calculation. Uh, the child goes and knocks on the superintendent's door and says, I will give you this valuable barometer that I'm not allowed to break if you will tell me how tall the building is. No, 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 the master says that's not it either. The child looks at the shadow of the building puts down the barometer, knows how high the barometer is, and by mathematical triangulation computes the height. At this point, the, the master gives up and says, this child is very creative, but he does not know how to use a barometer. <laughs> well, the, the, the moral here is that computers are like that. Uh, in most of the programs that I wind up building, uh, very often solve problems in very intricate and unexpected ways, and very seldom in the common sense path that a person would take to solve what we think of the straightforward means of solving a problem or dealing with everyday life. So that is one of the major challenges in trying to make a computer reason along the same path that humans reason. It is not the ability to have them do creative things in the sense that creativity means different from those things that we already know how to do. Now, what, well, isn't there a frustration there since we don't really know how the human works, how the human mind does work? I mean, what's wrong with having a computer think along different lines. Won't that give you a different approach to the same subject? Uh, from a pragmatic standpoint, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it uh, at that level. But suppose that what we have is a computer that can perform very complex medical diagnosis. And the doctor now wants to figure out whether or not the reasoning process the computer went through is valid, makes sense, jives with his own experience. Then it behooves the computer to explain its behavior along terms that the doctor can understand, understand and comprehend each step. Uh, it doesn't just uh, end at medical diagnosis or any other task that requires a high degree of expertise. Professor, will you? Yeah. The, the word experience keeps getting into this conversation. I think it's terribly important. Uh, earlier, Bob McDonald said that, uh, that if he were to ask you a question, you would answer according to your experience. You know, and that's exactly right. And again, here, where we're talking about experience. Uh, I think that uh, an important thing to note is uh, that, that a computer uh, can't have every variety of human experience uh, simply because it's a computer. Uh, for, for example, uh, it, it, it hasn't had the experience of being separated from its mother and so on. If, uh, and, and, and this, and this uh, it seems to me, 
is 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 one of the uh, one of the central points that I think ought to be observed about. There are advantages and disadvantages of having mothers, but uh, yeah. is it possible to develop computers that would have a sense of a, having a mother or a father? Well, let me address a slightly simpler version of that question first, and that is that reasoning from one's past experience is an absolutely crucial cognitive uh, effort. In fact, the main work that I'm doing now is reasoning by analogy to one's past experience to be able to learn, have the computer learn from its mistakes and its successes and the experience of others that it can observe performing uh, at a particular type of problem in order to improve its own behavior, in order to modify, to learn, and to adjust to a changing environment. So the ability to reason from experience is absolutely crucial. We know how to do parts of it, we don't know how to do other parts. Now when this experience comes down to the early developmental psychological level of dealing with one's parents, um, I believe that we do have a bit of a gap between the abilities of a computer and those of a human. Well, I don't, that, most I, humans don't do so well at that either. No, I don't, According I, to Freud. I don't think it's, 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 it's necessary to decry that gap, and, and certainly I, I would say that one shouldn't say about it that, well, so far we have a gap and it'll all, it'll all be closed. And nor am I emphasizing particularly early experience. That's just that's just a uh, that, that's, that's just a, an, illust an illustration that's easy to understand. I think for, I think that uh, for example, the experience of being touched. I mean, physically touched of someone reaching out and giving you his hand, for example, or, or, or being touched on the cheek, or and, and so on. These are experiences that computers obviously can't have. I mean, computers that don't have cheeks. Well, they don't have cheeks. So they can well, be touched. It may be, it may can be we build sense organs that can give them these experiences? Uh, we certainly can build sense of organs. Whether the experiences will be a close analog of yeah. the human experience, could we give them uh, erotic zones, for example? Yeah. Yes, but I'm sure this has been thought of. By yeah, but you see, you the, see, uh, the, the point is not is not so much um, whether the specific experiences that uh, um, Professor Weizenbaum is referring to here are those that the computer will necessarily be able to replicate is whether or not in principle one can build a system that can reason from past experiences yeah. whether they be whether they be uh, sensory experiences whether they be cognitive experiences uh, whether they would be flashes of insight whatever one calls them but one well, needs to be able to incorporate that in one's thinking yeah. process okay. and, and, think and we can, uh, I think we can do so and I think yeah. that we're in the process of making very strong head start in that direction and will these uh, machines or these friendly new entities help us become smarter or well they might help us in in an educational setting uh to un understand the specific experiences that the person that the student is having in learning in this particular look, domain look there's uh, no, Sarah, there's we're, no we're going to have to come back to this for a moment we're just getting going here i for one need a little break and uh, we'll be back in a minute our next guest is at the forefront of intelligent video games which he believes can be an incredible educational tool if developed properly. He's the vice president of the Exor Corporation in Minnesota, and he's here to discuss the implications of his work. Joining Dr. Leary is Michael de St. Hippolyte. Um, I think one of the reasons I was chosen to host this show is uh, that I'm not an expert. Uh, I'm fascinated, interested, and perhaps like many viewers, uh, um, looking for the future to happen here today. I must say, at this moment, I feel a little more at home. There's something here that's familiar. It's a personal computer. It's something that we've all coming to uh, get a little closer to in our daily life. And uh, Michael, uh, tell us, what's this about? And how are you going to increase our intelligence with this uh, machine? Well, I'd be happy to, Tim. And, and the first thing I'd like to say is that there's a difference between video games and computer games. 
And what I work on are computer games. And what that means is that, is that a, a computer has the ability to compute interactively, to, to work interactively with you, which means that it doesn't have to be just an eye-hand coordination game. It can be something... It's a thinking form of Pac-Man and yeah, a thinking Donkey form Kong of with, a, with a high IQ. That's right. And in fact, uh, the, one of the games that I have out, it's called St. Hippolyte's Wall, named after me, I guess, uh, is, a, is a thinking game because it's a game that involves decision-making and uh, decision-making uh, decision under uncertainty, under conditions of uncertainty. It plays differently every time. The idea of the game is you go around the screen and you gobble up prizes, sort of like Pac-Man, but whereas in Pac-Man the maze is the same every time, in St. Hippolyte's Wall the maze is constantly growing right around you. That's the wall. It's like life. It's like life, that's right. And just like life, you, you, get a different, uh, you get a different set of prizes every time. And some of the prizes are good prizes, some of the prizes are bad prizes. And you also can eat the wall, which is uh, sort of like making, making a, a bad situation into a good one. You know, taking advantage of, of the things in life that are, that are working against you and turning them for you. That could be quite profound concept. <laughs> well, I, 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 hope it, I hope the game is, is seen as being profound because while on the surface it seems like just a, may, may seem like another computer game to people who look at it for the first time, I found that as people play it, they, they realize that there's a little bit more to it. And uh, for one thing, it's not the type of game where you're being pursued and either, either uh, you get them before they get you. It's more of a game where, where you're confronted with the situation and you have to deal with the situation in a rational way and there's no not necessarily a best way of playing it and you you pretty much have to be just on your toes and and thinking about what's going on that's one way that computers can can help increase intelligence just by providing us with situations that we can react to and there's can you ever beat it oh can i you ever get to the stage where you're better than the computer i i think yeah i beat it about half the time and uh, when you get good at it that's you you get to beat it about half the time and you know it, we could make it harder but the point is not to make is not to make a, make the situation impossible, but the point is is more to make the situation worthwhile and interesting and instructive. Let me see if I understand this. You're developing personal computer games, and you, so you right. can go and pay the same amount of money as a Pac-Man, take it home, and it can help you perhaps think more uh, in a complex way, or increase your intelligence, or perhaps stimulate or activate you to become smarter is that right that's right that's that's my goal and also i have another goal which is that i consider myself a craftsman or an artist and and uh, just like an artist when he works when he or she works on a work of art they can't help but put a little bit of their personality into it well i believe that 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 uh, uh, when people talk about artificial intelligence it's a little bit misleading because when regular people non-computer people think of intelligence they think of well, being able to remember all sorts of facts or being able to add numbers very fast. And those are the sort of things that computers have been doing very well for a long time, and they do much better than we do. Whereas, I, I would think that what, when, when you talk to computer scientists and in artificial intelligence, and they describe to you the things that they're trying to accomplish, it's more like uh, the things that three-year-olds do well, that's rather what, than uh, that scientists uh, Wendy do. Wendy and Jaime have been reminding us of. That's right. And to me, it, uh, it's more really personality than intelligence. And I like to put my personality in a, in a computer. And uh, in fact, a, a game that I have coming out in the near future, it's called Agent 2.0. The star of this 
of this game is a, a friendly computer named Wayne. And uh, I, happen to have, I happen to have brought Wayne along with me. And if you want to, we can talk to Wayne now a little Wayne bit. Wayne is, is going to be a, a, an agent, is that it? Well, You're Wayne is going to help you. You're the agent right. in the game. And well, uh, you have to solve the case. And Wayne will just help you. He's a friendly computer. And uh, he's, he may not be uh, extremely smart, but he's, he's a little bit smart. There's a certain amount of intelligence in there. And there's mostly a little bit of personality. And that, that was my goal. Would well, you like to talk to Wayne? Out, uh, hello. Okay, now you're going to ask the questions, and I'll type them in, and then Wayne will be able to answer us. Hello. Peter, welcome. Uh, you have the uh, advantage of listening to uh, some of the great minds of our times, including a three-month-old uh, uh, intelligent entity. Uh, how does it all look to you from this vantage point? I think it's uh, a couple of, of things that will be of interest to the audience, one being that we're beginning to see by talking to the people behind the scenes that computers are tools and that this may be considered cyborg magic and in fact the uh, last demonstration I enjoyed uh, I tend to work in the real world uh, where we see the impact of the work of this august group and I think some fundamental issues start to emerge one being the computer is profoundly altering not necessarily the level of intelligence by the pesky humanoids out there but rather <laughs> the application of the existent base of intelligence. For instance, in management, historically survival mechanisms have been contingent upon uh, an, an enormous capacity to retain factual information, i.e. a data bank, and to draw upon that data bank in the uh, back and forth of business. And we're beginning to see a new samurai technocrat elite emerge in business who have begun to recognize that they no longer need to fill up their own humanoid data banks with tactics. Rather, they're focusing their intellect on strategy. <clears throat> Excuse me, first day with the wooden teeth. Um, they're focusing their efforts towards strategic solutions. And in the game, I thought it was personified in that in order to survive the game, all the tactics you know in the world won't help you because the tactics are being presented by the game. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, what it will do if you play that game is develop a keener sense of strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, if that's an improvement in human intelligence, I'm not sure. It's a reapplication, and it is profoundly altering the personnel requirements for business. Um, they're now looking for people who not only are computer literate, but people who have a capacity to priorize um, information as to whether it's strategic or tactical. And I'm saying that if we have a finite capacity for information or knowledge, as it's been defined, uh, we must recognize that the tool of the computer is infinitely superior at regurgitating facts. It knows who, what, where, when, why, uh, I'm sorry, who, what, where, when, and how, it doesn't know why. Why? Okay. But doesn't it also have a, a new capacity now, though, to associate ideas and not just regurgitate facts, but put facts together in a pattern that perhaps you didn't think of? Uh, there's the, always the possibility, all of us who've worked in computers have had the serendipitous experience where uh, relational models have generated some so-called creative event. I think that ultimately that would be deemed by computer scientists to be an error. <coughs> That, that is perhaps the ultimate, an ultimate point of disagreement. Um, in, if one views these, quote, relational models, these being primarily data banks, um, 
as the intelligence itself, uh, one is then not viewing at what the fundamental problems are. The fundamental problems in artificial intelligence are precisely the methods of combining these facts to arrive at new conclusions and to solve problems that it could not solve without the combination of the facts in ways that are explicitly related, explicitly targeted at solving goals that are internal to the machine. But, but if, when you're talking about solving problems, uh, you must be talking about uh, a specific class of problems, at least in my view. Uh, I think, uh, I think it's, it's essentially a pun on the word problem that we talk about uh, human problems. Uh, there's something I quarrel with my wife, there's something, I have a problem with my marriage. And as soon as you say problem, then there's a suggestion that there may be a solution, just as there's a solution to mathematical problems. In fact, human problems are never solved, ever. If I have a, if, if people may suggest to me that the solution to your problem is to get a divorce, okay? But that isn't a solution. You heard that's this it. first, then. <laughs> yeah. That's, 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 the tra that's a transformation of, of, of my problem, if I want to continue to use that word, to another problem, which may or may not be easier to live with. Uh, Twenty years later, it may be that people will, will that, that I'll notice that my, the problem I had, again, to use that vocabulary with my marriage, has disappeared. But it was never <coughs> solved. Now, what I'm, what I'm getting at here, <clears throat> is that is that uh, computers, uh, with or without artificial intelligence, uh, can uh, can attack and solve uh, usefully uh, a, a particular class of problems, but there are other classes of problems, in particular human problems, uh, which, although they can deal with them, uh, seems to me uh, must be dealt with in a way uh, which is inappropriate to the to the, to the problem being discussed. Well, one can define a solution to a problem to be the best course of action that one can evaluate yeah. yes, given all the knowledge at hand. Yeah, okay, well, that's, then we come back, then we come to, back to the, first of all, use the use of the word best, and second, there's the, 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 the question of, uh, of all the relevant knowledge. And what I'm, what, what I'm saying, and what I tried to say earlier, is that uh, the, the, the knowledge we have, <coughs> and so on, is, is, is ultimately a function of our experience. Okay, and, uh, and there are certain experiences uh, which we have which lead us to take certain views of certain human situations, which a computer can't possibly have. You know, I mentioned I mentioned touching. Now, I didn't mean, and I don't mean, that the computer can't be made to perceive a touch. What I do mean is that we understand, and the word understand has come in here many times, that we understand a touch. We sometimes understand a touch. I'd in like terms to of touch. our experience. Yeah. I'd like to touch one base with you. We have about one minute left of this section. You, you've had some experience in the social and political implications of uh, AI. Could you share that with us? Well, following uh, Professor Weizenbaum's uh, historical concerns about AI, the, the holy grail of the computer scientist, if you will, I think that his, his concerns have been uh, from a moralistic view. My concerns are more from a practicality buy-sell proposition. I think what we're beginning to see... Buy-sell in the commercial sense. Well, life may be a buy-sell proposition. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think that ultimately, uh, the professor's view that we, we ultimately don't solve human problems. We actually shortlist uh, more desirable uh, contingencies or environments that we can deal with. And I think that the trap is to create the illusion that the computer will solve our problems. It will aid as a tool. It may or it may help. not. It may or may not, yeah. but it, yeah. at, at best it has the capacity to shortlist possible solutions to our problems. 
At this moment, we're going to have to shortlist this part of our program. The real fun begins in the next section when uh, these great minds, and perhaps even Wayne, will uh, debate, discuss, challenge, uh, and continue this electrifying uh, conversation. Come back. I know Wendy's got, got a question or a comment to something that Professor Weismum said, so let's hear it. Yeah, I'd like to talk about this issue of experience, which seems so very important. As you pointed out, computers do not have the wealth of experiences that people do, and that this might, in fact, be a uh, limiting factor in, in what we can expect of them. But uh, it's important to understand that people have two very different kinds of experiences as well. They have the first-hand experiences of, of direct interaction with the environment, and they have vicarious experiences. One of, one of the presumably good things about our culture is the fact that, that we've got printing presses and we have information that's flying all over the place, and people can, in fact, learn about things that have not confronted them directly, and we can learn about them at levels which enable us to respond more intelligently to new situations and problems. Now, the computer obviously is, is, is more receptive to vicarious experience at this point than firsthand, and by being limited in that sense, we are, we are actually learning a lot about what can be done with that level of information. And, and I think it's, it, it's, it's critical to understand that there is a lot of vicarious information we can give computers which will enable them to operate in ways we might not have expected. Uh, one of my problems that I work on is narrative text summarization. How do you give a computer a short story or a novel? and have it come back with a one-sentence summary or a, a short paragraph describing what it was just exposed to. Well, that, that's the best graduate student stuff here, isn't it? Well, <laughs> the problem has not been solved by any means, but we, yeah. do, we do have a program that can in some sense sift through all of the conceptual content that it's been exposed to and zero in on what is central and salient to the major theme that was being developed. And, and one of the surprising things that, that no one expected in developing that program was that the level of memory representation, the kind of information that, that the computer has to have access to in order to zero in on the central concepts, is information about effective reactions, emotional reactions that characters in the story have to each other. And obviously the computer program has not experienced emotive states itself, but we can give it some rudimentary knowledge of what it means to, to respond to something in a positive way or a negative way, and that has turned out to be crucial to a cognitive task which doesn't obviously connect in that direction. I, I have absolutely no quarrel with anything you've said. That's exactly why. Okay, but I think it's also important, especially if we're going to be talking about computers dealing with human problems, uh, that it's also important to, to emphasize what the limits are and to say that while, of course, a computer can have vicarious experience, in the sense that we can tell it what some things are about and all that, there's still that, 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 uh, that its ability to understand those experiences is limited by the fact, by, by, uh, by, by, its, own, by its own limitations to experience things. I, there's no question in my mind about that, that, uh, 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 for example, you're talking about now uh, uh, the computer uh, summarizing a novel. Let's talk about, say, and, and, and as you know, this is the language that's used in the computer science community, uh, the computer understanding a story or understanding a novel. Okay, what does that mean? Okay, I think that that uh, it, it's true that there's a whole world out there uh, to which MIT has contributed very considerably of people who believe that to understand a story is to be able to say what happened. 
Okay, that that there is no effective understanding of a story. Okay, so that so that uh, uh, to understand King Lear is to be able to tell the story and so on. But where uh, does that come from? That comes from the fact that we don't know how to evaluate human understanding that's right. either. That's if right. I need but to test a student on, on story yeah. comprehension, what do I do? I ask questions about the story. I ask, can you summarize yeah. the story? Yeah, but we're not. I'm, I'm talking about real life now. I'm not talking about testing a student. Okay, I'm, I'm talking about. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about what a computer can understand and can't understand, and what, and what the limitations of that are, and what I'm suggesting is a form of human understanding, uh, which, is, uh, which is a function of, of, of having had human experiences, and, and hence to interpret, uh, a function of interpreting vicarious understanding, uh, vicarious information we get, as for example in novels. This interpretation is done again on the basis of our experience. Could you say that um, a doctor uh, could understand what appendicitis is? Um, a particular doctor who can treat appendicitis, diagnose it, cure it, teach other prospective doctors about it, has not himself experienced appendicitis. Not no, to mention pregnancy. No, 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 exactly. but that's, that's, not, that's, not, that's not what I'm saying. It, it is true, it is true that, that, uh, that, men, uh, that men's understanding of, of, of pregnancy, for example, is limited by the fact that men can't have the experience of being pregnant. It is yeah, limited. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. But it does not... It doesn't mean doctors from yeah, that's, that's from right. an extremely useful that's role right. absolutely. In, in helping out with pregnancies and helping delivery. From the beginning of conception absolutely. all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. But that's that's exactly right. I mean, that, that, it, it, yes, it doesn't require total human understanding to solve an, an, an infinitude of problems. That's exactly right. Okay, but I'm you, trying to you equate understanding with absolute, complete, first-hand no, experience. No, 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 no. And that's just wrong. But I, I, that's I'm, what you've been saying. Well. Uh, I, I'm talking about understanding a certain class of events. Checkmate here. No, no. I'm saying, I'm saying, I'm, I'm talking about understanding a certain class of events, events which are which are which are grounded in human experience and so on. The doctors or the surgeons' understanding of appendicitis is certainly not a complete understanding. It's an understanding which is which is adequate to the purpose. Okay. And exactly. one of the things we haven't talked about exactly. Now this okay. understanding adequate, adequate to the, to the purpose, purpose changes the game again. Exactly. Exactly. And this is precisely the type of understanding that we are trying to achieve and with AI systems yes, to aid good. human thinking, and I, and reasoning, I, and, and to replicate yes, those aspects yes, of it. And uh, I congratulate you and wish you well. Okay, I think, I think, I think that if, if that's the kind of understanding that you're working on and so on, and I know you are personally, uh, then, then that's wonderful. Okay, there's no question about it. What I'm, what I'm uh, getting at here is, is essentially the, the, the imperialism of artificial intelligence, where by imperialism I mean the attempt to, to, to govern domains which aren't probably its. And, Peter, and are you going to come in here? Well, the uh, question I have uh, follows this line of thought. Given that the computer is infinitely more powerful than a shovel or a pair of pliers, is your concern that because we've created a very powerful tool that you see that as uh, being analogous to the problems of society, that if we be, if we allow the dependency models to occur, that we'll have autocracy, centralized no, no, power. No, that's not. That's not my. Concern. That's much, much too simple. No, no. My concern is is something like this: that uh, that someone uh, I may be sitting next to on an airplane, and who who uh, knows that uh, who comes to know that I'm a professor at MIT, uh, thinks that I must be so smart. Okay, that that uh, that uh, that I ought to listen to his, the problems he has with his children and whatever. That I'll, I'll undoubtedly come up with better answers than anybody else because I'm so much smarter. Well, that's wrong. Okay, uh, whether or not I can deal with his questions has has a lot to do with his social and economic uh, situation. To what extent I understand that, 
uh, whether I have children of my own or not, and so on and so forth. What I'm talking about here, the danger that I see, is is uh, that we, we come to such an awe of computers, and especially of artificial intelligence. I don't that at all. No one hears. Uh, I think you're setting up a straw man, and you're mm -hmm. certainly yeah. wailing and whacking away. But I did uh, see you stroking that computer, uh, saying, uh, isn't uh, it nice to have it like it was like it was a pet? You were humanizing that thing, and I think there's, well, a, there's a role distinction here that needs to be defined. Like, what is it we want the computers to do? And there's an interesting parallel science that's, that's here, which is the science of neurology where the neurologists are trying to understand how does the brain work, and if we can figure that out and see any patterns in how the, the, the cells in the cortex fire according to certain stimulus, then maybe we can apply that to the computer and therefore make the computer better at calculating. But we're not trying to say, uh, okay, well, if we can give the computer all of the, the uh, related experiences and emotions that we use, like, I don't know how it is I'm talking right now. I don't know what my brain is doing to give me this, this flow of words. But if well. we can figure that out, then we can say, well, okay, we can have a literate computer of some kind. But is that really what we want? Do we want the computer to then say, uh, or do we want to ask the computer, how do you feel about this novel? No. What we, we don't care about that. What we maybe want to know maybe is how many Hamlets are there in other associated novels? How many other characters like Hamlet could I, could I find in other areas? Or things like that. We wanted to associate ideas and put them together. Not necessarily expressive emotions. Well, Michael, you haven't had a chance here. Yeah, I, I would like to just uh, stick up for computers here a little bit. Because I don't know if we have the right to say that computers do not have the right to think and feel if that's what happens. And if, to be stroked. If they, if they develop it, I mean, computers are already getting to the point where they are improving themselves. There's, there are programs that are able to, to make themselves more efficient, and that's, that's, we're still a long ways away from, from intelligence or feelings or anything, but the first step towards artificial intelligence is artificial stupidity, and maybe we've gotten to that step already. But what, 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 I, what I think is, a, is a, a good question to throw out here is, um, do, uh, do we have the right to, to tell computers that they can't think? If, if and when the day comes that, that a, a computer can show you every sign of being intelligent and of being, uh, being capable of feeling, well, what would be your reaction? Would you pull out the plug? Would you, do you have the right to pull out the plug? This is the beginning of a computer liberation movement. Yeah. <laughs> Free like, the computer. It, it might be Peter. That if I can. You, you use terms that I'm uncomfortable with, the right. Uh, I don't believe in rights. Uh, I, I think that ultimately... You're not an abolitionist. Uh, no, and I, I think that uh, there's an assumption of altruism here that, that this thing marches on inexorably. Ultimately, market imperative, draw the science towards some conclusion. And I think that the question that stems from the extension of your point is that what do we do with a reasoning computer? Because once we understand the need, the market imperative surface, and we will then go forward, uh, with the exception of language translation, which is obviously a key role, uh, is it the nobling pursuit of knowledge that will drive artificial intelligence? I think not. I think it'll be market imperatives that will ultimately realize it. Professor, I, I, you know, I hate to think about uh, you know, that marketing imperatives drive, drive science and engineering and so on. Perhaps you're right, okay, but if you're right, then it's a very, very dark picture. I should think that human will comes into it that some idea of what we may want and what we may not want comes into it, quite irrespective of, of marketing imperatives. Uh, maybe you're right, but, but if you are, then it's very, very I sad. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. 
And so that was where the discussion about reasoning computers, or so-called artificial intelligence, stood a, uh, a little over 25 years ago. Unfortunately, the tape ended before the program did. However, I think we heard most of it. Uh, but that last comment about whether or not market imperatives were the driving force of science was quite interesting, don't you think? Because today it is quite clear to me, at least, that science, uh, even at the university level, is driven primarily by grant money, which either comes from businesses looking for market advantages or from the government, which primarily grants scientists money so that they can come up with more efficient ways to control and kill people. So, to me at least, it looks like that dark scenario they were discussing has now come to fruition. But that's not what I want to talk about right now. You, you see, uh, <laughs> one of my hot buttons has to do with the fact that we all, myself included, very often throw terms around way too loosely. For example, artificial intelligence. To some people, this means some kind of godlike computer program. But people who are actually working in that field will tell you that it's not a one-size-fits-all term and that there's more than one kind of AI. So just stop and think about it for a moment. The word artificial itself means human-made or something not found in nature. Now, for the believers in a superhuman, self-reflective kind of AI, well, it seems to me that they should realize the impossibility of creating a being greater than its creator. And if you follow some of the discussions of the problems in all the various types of AI, like uh, how do you program emotions such as loneliness and grief into a machine, well, uh, it should then become more easy to uh, see that belief in a super machine consciousness taking over anytime soon is uh, rather misplaced for the foreseeable future. And while the concept of a technological singularity wasn't discussed in this program, I'd uh, be somewhat remiss if I didn't at least say something about that as well, since many of the pro-AI people and the singularitarians often find themselves in the same crowd. And I apologize in advance if this is uh, stepping on your toes a little, but hopefully you'll give some thought to uh, being more precise with your terms if you want to convince us non-believers in a magical technological singularity in which a super-consciousness wakes up in the Google network on December 21st, 2012 and solves all the world problems. Uh, could happen, and I hope you say you told me so. Uh, I just don't think it will myself. You see, first of all, uh, a superhuman AI wasn't the only possibility of a technological singularity that Vinge raised in 1993. In that uh, now famous paper, which he delivered back then at, uh, I think it was at a NASA symposium, he listed four distinct ways in which such an event might take place. And they are, one, and that's the one everybody grabs hold of, the development of computers that are, quote, awake and superhumanly intelligent. Uh, two, large computer networks and their associated users may wake up, that was in quotes, as a superhumanly intelligent entity. Three, computer-human interfaces may become so intimate that users may reasonably be considered superhumanly intelligent. And four, biological science may find ways to improve upon the natural human intellect. So, when I think about the possibility of a singularity, it, it's in his uh, points two and three that I most resonate with. But uh, what then about the word singularity itself? As you know, there are also several definitions of that word. But 
The only one that I consider is that of the well-understood concept of an event horizon as described by physicists who study black holes. And from their point of view, a singularity is an event beyond which it's absolutely impossible for the human mind to comprehend. And so, by that definition, all talk of a post-singularity world seems kind of ludicrous. To me, uh, the word God describes a singularity. But if I used that word in casual conversation, most of my friends would probably think that they knew exactly what I was talking about. However, not a lot of people I know use the same definition of that word as I do. So, should you ever chance to hear me say God, I hope that you will also understand that the meaning of that word for me comes from Joseph Campbell's definition, which is, God is a metaphor for a mystery that absolutely transcends all human categories of thought. God is a metaphor for a mystery that absolutely transcends all human categories of thought. And as Campbell so brilliantly pointed out, that even excludes calling God the other, because uh, that's just another category. (laughs) Well, that's enough heavy thinking for now, so I'll just make two quick announcements and then I'll be out of here. The first is about a podcast that Uh, you won't want to miss if you're anything at all like me and enjoy hearing some of the real old-timers talk. The elder I'm talking about is none other than the bear, otherwise known as Owsley. As you know, Bear died recently, but in BB's Bungalow number 44, her guest host, Iolite Knight, plays what most likely is the last talk-slash-interview that Owsley ever gave. And that alone makes it a great program. But after Owsley, you'll also hear episode 2 of Vape 101 by resident vaporologist Niall. And uh, that is something you really won't want to miss if you're at all interested in learning more about our sacred herb, cannabis. You know, I've probably been using grass longer than a lot of our fellow saloners have been alive. And still, I learned so much from Niall's talk that I've now listened to it twice and uh, took notes a second time. So a big thanks to Niall, Iolite Knight, and Black Beauty for getting this important information out to the tribe. And uh, hey, keep up the great work, you guys. Now, the last thing I want to mention today is that there is a new and longer trailer out for the film Fall and Winter, which you can see at Fall Winter Movie, all one word, fallwintermovie.com. I've mentioned this before, uh, as it was the source of the uh, two great crescendo podcasts with Bruce Namer that we recently heard. But in addition to Bruce, there are over 20 other futurists featured in this film, and as you'll see in the trailer, it not only points out many of today's world problems, but it also provides some very inspirational ideas about ways in which you can personally help to shape the world for those who will be coming after us. I don't like the way that sounds. (laughs) Those will be coming after us. How about the generations that will follow us? (laughs) I don't know how these words slip out of my mouth sometimes. Anyway, I'll, I'll link to it in the program notes for this podcast in case you want to check it out, which I highly recommend you do. Well, that's going to do it for today, and so I'll close again by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage which you can find via psychedelicsalon.us. And if you're interested in the philosophy behind the salon, you can uh, hear something about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, 
which is available as a pay-what-you-can audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. It is the impossible become possible, and yet remaining impossible.